Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the state historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. In this episode, our guest, Elizabeth Petrie, is a journalist. She knows how to uncover a clue, follow a lead, and tell a good story. Her mother was best-selling novelist Anne Petrie, whose 1946 debut novel, The Street, became the first novel by an African-American to sell more than a million copies. In this episode, Liz tells us more about her family tree, the James and Lane families, four generations of strivers and achievers descended from self-emancipated slaves who settled in New Haven, Hartford, and Old Saybrook, Connecticut. 400 family letters survive, many of which contain stories that were fodder for Anne Petrie's novels. Hear more about how Liz and two of her cousins are taking the family story to the screen. We join Steve Courtney at the Mark Twain House and Museum as he introduces the lecture from which the podcast was recorded. But now to Liz Petrie. I worked for many years with Liz at the Hartford Current, and although I knew of her mother, Anne Petrie, as a famous novelist, her works The Street and The Narrows have recently appeared in a Library of America edition. Only later did I learn of the long Connecticut lineage of Liz's fascinating family. And I learned this, of course, through Liz's book, Can Anything Beat White? A Black Family's Letters, based on some 400 letters that her grandmother saved. It's a graceful and scrupulously researched book, really a multi-generational family epic. She has also developed her family story in the pages of the wonderful magazine Connecticut Explored, whose brilliant creators are here tonight recording their podcast, Grading the Nutmeg, and in the anthology, African American Connecticut Explored, which is available tonight in our bookstore. Liz was born in Old Saybrook, got her bachelor's from Vassar, her Juris Doctor from the University of Pennsylvania Law School. She was a journalist at the Middletown Press, the American Record Journal, as well as The Current. She's the author also of At Home Inside, a daughter's tribute to Anne Petrie. She conducts a writing workshop for military veterans at Russell Library in Middletown. And we will now hear how with her cousins Ashley James and Catherine Golden. She is developing a documentary film based on the letters collected in Can Anything Beat White? So I'll turn it over to Liz. Thank you all for coming this evening. And thank you to Steve, who keeps inviting me back here to speak. It's always so wonderful. You all are such a terrific audience. And I'd also like to thank the folks from Connecticut Explored who are turning this into a podcast. Um, I'll have more, a little more to say about those podcasts in a minute. As Steve told you, I spoke here about Can Anything Beat White, A Black Family's Letters. Um, I spoke here for the first time about five years ago, and that was when I discussed my family's connection to the Clemens family and my book, Can Anything Beat White? A Black Family's Letters. And as Steve said, this is a collection of some 400 notes and cards and letters that my family exchanged between about 1873 and 1910. My grandmother saved them, and I was able to edit them for publication. 
The last time I was here, it was the 150th anniversary of great-granduncle Charlie Hudson's enlistment into New York's Lincoln Cavalry during the waning days of the Civil War. That was when he changed his name, lied about his age, and passed for white for the first time. He was wounded six days before Appomattox and received a disability pension, and we have proudly kept his military records. I also discussed the confusing family naming patterns, which I'm not going to go over again, but that was maybe four or five Annas, multiple Willis's, Charlie's, and Harry's. Now, the key to these people was Charlie's sister, Anna Estelle Houston, whom I'll discuss more in a minute, and her husband, Willis Samuel James, whose daughter Bertha saved those letters. Their granddaughter became the best-selling author and my mother, Anne Petrie. She was the first African-American woman to sell more than one million copies of a book. That book is The Street, which was published in 1946 and is still in print. Much has happened since I was here, and I'll update you on new editions of my mother's works. I'm going to present some information from my article in the current issue of Connecticut Explored and discuss a narrative that reveals some information about Anna Houston's birth. And I'll talk about Anne Petrie and the James Family Letters, a Ken Burns-style documentary that my cousins and I are making. As I noted, my grandmother saved all those letters. And I have to thank Christy for this, this slide. Anyway, um, in that regard, we are the anti-Marie Kondo. Okay. Or maybe it's just that a great many things bring us joy. Regarding that limitation on books, as you can see, I counted 30 on just one shelf of one of two bookcases in the bedroom. And that doesn't include the books in my study, the TV room, the living room, and the kitchen. There is no way I would dream of abandoning all those treasured possessions, some of which belong to my mother. And I recently read of a man who threw away trunks containing letters and news articles and other items from his family's home. His mother had been a co-founder of the League of Women Voters and led the fight to enact the now defunct Fairness Doctrine and Equal Time Rule for broadcasters. Her son later said that he regretted tossing all that material and we lose valuable pieces of our history when people discard such items. Because of my grandmother, Bertha James, and her anti-condo tendencies, I was able to establish a multi-layered connection to the Clemens family. Mark Twain's butler, George Griffin, was a friend of my great-grandfather, Willis James, who catered parties for Hartford's wealthy elite and at one time worked as a chauffeur for the family of Governor Marshall Jewell, who lived um, down the street on Farmington Avenue. It's likely that Willis and George Griffin attended the same church, and I have no doubt it was Mr. Griffin who connected the two families. My grandmother, as a girl, collected a great many autographs, among them Mrs. Stowe, the entire Clemens family, including the man himself, and George Griffin. And I think you can probably read, Mrs. Stowe says, trust in the Lord and do good, written by your sincere friend, Harriet N. Beecher Stowe, December 15, 1889. Bertha began her collection in 1885 when she was 10 and continued to solicit autographs until the 1940s. Later entries, which she pasted into a scrapbook, came from such luminaries as Cornelius Vanderbilt and Edward R., later known as Edward VIII. 
and after that, the man who gave up his throne for a divorced American. As I was writing my earlier talk, I realized there was a six degrees connection. Well, actually, it's four in this case, and it leads right back here. Helen James, a younger daughter of Anna Houston and Willis James, attended Atlanta University when Edward Twitchell Ware was the chaplain. He later became the president. His father, Edmund Asa Ware, founded the school. His mother was Sarah Jane Twitchell, and she was the younger sister of Joseph Hopkins Twitchell, pastor of Asylum Hill Congregational Church and Mark Twain's best friend. And here's where I get to plug Steve's excellent biography of the Reverend Joseph Hopkins Twitchell. He's captured the soul of this amazing man and helped me to understand what Hartford and much of the rest of the world was like as Twain blazed through it. When Helen returned from Hawaii, where she had taught and worked as an orphanage, she delivered a lecture on her experiences at Asylum Hill while Reverend Twitchell was still the pastor. And in earlier years, members of the congregation had given our family contributions from the poor box and had sent Helen donations of books and money for the Kona Orphanage on the Big Island. So here's what's new. Earlier this year, Northwestern University Press published a new edition of Country Place. It's the first in more than 60 years. And it's considered Mother's White novel as it explores the emotions unleashed during a hurricane that devastates a small Connecticut town. Grounded in the experience in 1938 that she had in Old Saybrook, it presents in crystalline detail all of the hypocrisy and double dealing um, that lie beneath the proper and calm New England surface. This work follows the Northwestern University Press editions of The Narrows and Miss Muriel and other stories, meaning that with the exception of two books for children, everything that Anne Petrie has written is now in print, and it feels wonderful to continue her legacy that way. Also earlier this year, the Library of America published this gorgeous edition of The Street, The Narrows, and several of her essays. I found this compilation invaluable because it includes a timeline with pretty much every event in my mother's life so I can quickly find, for example, the names of her various awards, present information on the dates of publication of the works for children, and the dates when she received her four honorary doctorates. Also this year, the fall edition of Connecticut Explored has a variety of essays on family history with the theme separating fact from fiction. The cover photo is Child Hassam and the Burks of Cass Cobb. The issue also includes Martha Hall Kelly's fascinating essay, Caroline Faraday and her infinitely generous family. I had, of course, heard of the Bellamy Faraday house, but knew nothing more about the people for whom it was named. And I felt an immediate kinship as I read Kelly's account of this wonderful woman who fought to protect and support victims of Hitler's atrocious experiments. Kelly says Faraday kept everything, and Kelly cherished the hours spent leafing through all that ephemera. This sentence struck me. I developed a rich sense of her personality and passions. I had the identical experience reading the letters left behind by my amazing family. Obviously, Caroline Faraday was anti-condo as well. Searching for my James and Lane families is my contribution to the effort to separate fact from fiction. 
while I was writing it, I joked that I should call it Lies My Family Told. <laughs> Aside from Uncle Charlie, there were my mother's various birth dates. My favorite variation on the truth came from great-great-grandmother Lydia Lane, and that's was Lydia in the corner there. She claimed she saw George Washington crossing the Delaware. She lived near the river in New Jersey, but even math-challenged Liz didn't have to reach for a calculator to realize how impossible that would have been because she was born in 1820. <laughs> I make reference in the article to another recent discovery which I didn't have space to explore at lengths. Um, I, I had already completed both Can Anything Beat White and At Home Inside, a daughter's tribute to Anne Petrie, when I discovered Unto the Third and Fourth Generation. It's in the Frank P. and Helen James Chisholm Family Papers Archive at Emory University. The 65-page typewritten manuscript includes an account of Helen's attempt to locate the birthplace of her mother, Anna Estelle Houston. While she was attending Atlanta University in 1905, Helen made a trip into the Alabama countryside. The name of the town is blanked out in the typescript, and she says she did not succeed in finding her mother's birthplace, as the place no longer existed. But she did provide a view of life for an enslaved child, what I regard as an idealized view. She quotes her mother as saying she played in the sunshine. Her most arduous task was to ride the mule that took the corn to the mill. One day, all that changed. And this is Helen quoting her mother. Father called us and told us that we were going away on a long journey. My brother was dressed as a little girl and my sisters and I as boys. We traveled by night and rested by day. Their father said that all the hotels and stations had large posters advertising our escape. Because of the change of clothing, my father had outwitted his father. They arrived in New Haven, where the father left a large sum of money with a lawyer for their care, and he returned to Alabama to settle his business with a promise to return. We never saw him again, Anna told her daughter. I learned in after years that in a family quarrel over what he had done, he was killed. I haven't begun to try to verify this information, and based on my lack of success in tracing other parts of the family, I don't hold out much hope. <laughs> Under the third and fourth generation also contains Helen's own account of what it was like to be a young African-American woman living in Hartford during the late 19th and early 20th century, the period covered by the letters. Parts of this narrative and uh, are just one of the elements we'll be adding with the second round of funding we have received from Connecticut Humanities. The first grant, which resulted in the film clip you'll see, included several days of interviews. Among the best were with Walt Woodward, the Connecticut State Historian, and with Farrah Jasmine Griffin, who has written extensively about Anne Petrie and who published a revealing book called Beloved Sisters, Loving Friends, Letters from Rebecca Primus of Royal Oak, Maryland, and Addie Brown of Hartford, Connecticut, 1854 to 1868. Published in 2001 by Ballantyne, the work analyzes the letters exchanged between the two women. Rebecca Primus's family had been in Hartford since the 18th century, and when the older James children were young, she had returned from teaching freedmen. Addie Brown worked as a servant for most of her life until her marriage. 
Beloved Sisters offers a portrait of life north and south with generous doses of insight into the women's personal lives. One of the fascinating observations that Farah made during her interview for the film was that letters such as those exchanged by the Primus family and by the James family constitute a separate literary genre. It's work that falls between the oral tradition, stories told by the griot, if you will, and Anne Petrie's elegantly polished narratives. And I'll have more to say about the Primus family a bit later. Our other interview subjects included Diana Isaacs, who wrote the first doctoral dissertation about mother, and Ted Levy, who writes for the Shoreline Times and authored Remarkable Women of Old Saybrook. We also conducted a fabulous interview with former first selectman, not select woman, first select man, Barbara Maynard, called the town mother in Ted's book. And my dear friend, Raven Wilkinson, who was the first African-American to dance with a professional ballet company in this country. She and her family began summering in Saybrook in the 1930s, and Raven talked lovingly of dancing on the sandbar when the tide was out on Long Island Sound. She passed away last year, and I miss her dreadfully. We're now in the process of fulfilling the requirements of the second Connecticut Humanities Grant. In one of those maybe not so coincidences, our newest scholar advisor is a close friend of Farrah Griffin. And last month, we conducted an interview with Manisha Sinha. She's the James L. and Shirley Draper Chair in American History at the University of Connecticut. And she wrote The Slave's Cause, A History of Abolition, which was published in 2016 by Yale University Press. And I have to say, as a non-historian, I found the work completely accessible. Manisha places blacks, enslaved and free, at the center of efforts to abolish slavery and to become full citizens with rights to own property and to vote. She's also the author of The Counter-Revolution of Slavery, published by University of North Carolina Press in 2000. And she's spending this academic year at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard University, where she's writing The Reconstruction of American Democracy, 1860 to 1920. So she has much scholarship to contribute to the film. Manisha offered a national perspective, including astute observations about how African Americans resisted attempts by white supremacists to deprive them of the equality that they had begun to achieve during Reconstruction. Scholars have called the late 19th century the nadir of the African American status in this country. But she pointed to the Herculean efforts of black people to counteract the lynchings and other terrorism. This was the time when the NAACP was founded and when Ida B. Wells was most active in her anti-lynching campaign. Manisha also provided historical background explaining why William Lloyd Garrison called Connecticut the Georgia of the North. His observation, she said, grew out of the cruel treatment that racist whites inflicted on Prudence Crandall and her students when she opened her school for colored misses in Canterbury. By the way, I did not realize that it was Mark Twain who helped Ms. Crandall obtain a pension from the state some 50 years after she was run out of town. My favorite interview subject for this session was Barbara Beeching. She's my hero, and she's here tonight. At 92, she's still engaged and passionate about history. Barbara, I hope you didn't mind that I told everybody how old you were. 
She earned a PhD at age 82 and is the author of Hopes and Expectations, The Origins of the Black Middle Class in Hartford, which was published in 2017 by the State University of New York Press. Um, and it's available in the bookstore, as is Steve's book, which I neglected to mention earlier. Sorry. Barbara was able to situate Anna Houston and Willis James in the city. They arrived well after the early black residents, some of whom, as I said, had been living in the city since the 18th century. But they predated by decades the arrivals of the Great Migration and had established themselves even before the first Southerners began to flee white oppression in the 1870s and 80s. She's documented how the nadir came early for the black middle class in Hartford with the decline of home ownership and the like beginning in the 1860s. During the interview, Barbara expanded on the insight in her book that there was a limit to how much black people of the period strived to replicate the behaviors of their white compatriots. They did attempt to live lives of thrift, industry, and Christian morality, but they did not accept the white ideal of separate roles for men and women, Barbara wrote. The ideal for whites required the women to remain at home, focusing their energies on raising children and keeping house. At most, their outside activities would have involved volunteer work for the church or civic organizations. Black women performed their civic and religious duty in addition to running their households, and they did more. Barbara pointed to several who ran businesses or engaged in professions. And given the size of Hartford's black community, I am certain that Anna and Willis's daughters observed and had their lives shaped by the teacher Rebecca Primus. A greater role model, I'm sure, was Rebecca's mother, Mehitable Jacobs Primus. Born of another free black family, Mehitable not only earned money as a dressmaker, she taught domestic skills to young women and helped her husband run an informal employment service, Barbara wrote. She also worked as a nurse midwife, and she engaged in these activities both before and after the Civil War. The difference between the black and white communities had to do with economics, Barbara said in the interview, because it was far more difficult for a black man than for whites to earn enough to purchase a house and support a family on one salary. Barbara did a wonderful interview for the podcast Grading the Nutmeg, and it's number 53, which was released last July. As part of the film project, we also visited the archives at the Old Saybrook Historical Society, which houses a vast trove of newsreels. Local resident Fred Beebe started filming with a 16-millimeter camera in the 1930s. At this point, some of the reels have been transferred to VHS, some to DVD, and some still remain on enormous 16-millimeter reels. There's a stack of audio tapes as well. Unfortunately, we didn't have the equipment to view anything in the older formats, but we were able to select four DVDs that we arranged to have transferred to MP4 files. And Catherine and Ashley now have them to review frame by frame to see what we might be able to use in the documentary. We did see some terrific Revolutionary War reenactment scenes and a couple of very memorable Memorial Day parades. And I'm encouraging the Historical Society to apply for a grant from Connecticut Humanities to have all that material digitized before the film turns to vinegar and the equipment to view it no longer exists. They have an amazing resource that needs to be preserved and shared with the public. 
Among the more enticing images we saw were those of James Pharmacy and Anna Louise James, which have remained out of public view for more than 60 years. I haven't finished looking at the newsreels, which total some three hours, so you'll have to wait for my next lecture to find out what treasures lurk there. Anna Louise James was Willis and Anna's youngest daughter and was just eight when her mother died of tuberculosis. She escaped her father's house following his third marriage and went to Saybrook. Upon finishing high school, she enrolled in Brooklyn College of Pharmacy. She was not just the sole black person, she was also the only female. She graduated and returned to Connecticut where she received a pharmacy license, the first African-American woman to do so. She may be the first woman, but the records are incomplete, so there's no way to tell. And by the way, that necklace she's wearing is this necklace. It's my good luck talisman. Anna Louise James opened her own drugstore here in Hartford. Soon, though, she returned to Saybrook and took over my grandfather's pharmacy. In this photo, she looks young and vulnerable and determined. The young and vulnerable went away, but the determination stayed. As some of you may know, James Pharmacy became and remained an area institution for more than 40 years, and she became and remained a beloved member of the community, revered by pretty much everyone. When I posted a request for photos, home movies, and stories for the documentary on the Facebook page, You Might Be From Old Saybrook If, I was floored by the number and variety and quality of the comments about Miss James. Many concerned her generosity, but what came through most was how much she adored children. I'm sure she got that from her mother and from Bertha, the sister who cared for her. African American Connecticut Explored contains a marvelous article by Andrew Chatham on Miss James and the Pharmacy. And I contributed an essay called Just Like Georgia Except for the Climate, Black Life at Mid-Century and Anne Petrie's The Narrows. It looks at various aspects of the African American experience that my mother explored in the novel, which is set in a small city shortly after World War II. And copies of the book are available for sale in the bookstore. Beginning with the arrival of the first enslaved Africans in the state in 1638, the book traces our history up to the early days of this century. So many of the essays contain new and valuable information that we never learned in history class, and I urge you to read it. So here's part of the cast of characters that will be appearing in the movie, slightly younger versions of themselves. On the left in the white dress is my cousin Ashley James's grandfather. Yes, that is a little boy. Next to him is Helen, who was the one that traveled and wrote about 200 of the 400 letters. Next to her is Fritz, and he ran James Pharmacy in Old Lyme. Then there's Willis Jr. standing there with an attitude, um, which as you'll see in the documentary, continued as he got older. Harriet, who's leaning, um, is, died when she was 23 of tuberculosis, and that's very proper Bertha on the end. I have to do one more thank you before we see the film, um, because in addition to the Historical Society, we have another partner. And we needed a nonprofit to receive Connecticut Humanities funds, and the Community Foundation of Middlesex County um, stepped forward. It's been instrumental from the time we applied for our first grant, helping us to raise funds and acting as our fiscal agent. With the help of our allies, we'll continue to develop the film. 
Our next steps are to work through how to interweave the stories of this family, Helen meeting the last queen of Hawaii, her brother slogging through the jungles during the Philippine-American War, with an analysis of how Anne Petrie used those stories in her fiction. We'll continue exploring the rich history that informed their lives. We need to raise another $100,000 to film where the family members lived and worked, South Carolina, Virginia, Massachusetts, and hopefully Hawaii. We'll also hire professional scriptwriter and actors to read various portions of the letters. We'll be back with more from Liz in a moment after this message from our sponsor. Hi, it's Mary Donahue, assistant publisher of Connecticut Explored. From our friends at the Litchfield Historical Society, join us on November 15th for a symposium on the life and legacy of the Litchfield Female Academy. By the force of its own merits is a one-day symposium that will round out a two-year celebration of the Litchfield Female Academy, a progressive educational institution that instructed over 3,000 young women between 1792 and 1833. A diverse slate of presenters will discuss the structure and curriculum of the Academy, illuminate its role in the development of educational and social opportunities for women, and speak to the school's legacy and relevancy within current scholarship. The symposium will also feature educator-led walking tours of Litchfield's town center, focusing on the daily life of female academy students and an in-depth look at female academy materials from the archival and museum collections. For tickets and more information, visit litchfieldhistoricalsociety.org symposium. We're back with Liz Petrie. At this point in her lecture, she took questions from the audience. Yes. Where did you get all the letters? My, that's, a, that's a story in itself. My grandmother, because we had the pharmacy which had an ice cream parlor, and my grandmother stuck them in one of those tins that they used to deliver the ice cream cones in, which were metal um, and had, you know, it was completely airtight and they were rigid because they had to keep the cones, the ice cream cones, from getting crushed. So when I opened this tin, I know my mother had read the letters. But when I opened this tin about a hundred years after she had collected them, it, you could still smell the sandalwood from the leaves that Helen sent from Hawaii. Uh, and they were perfectly preserved. And one of the wonderful things about this is that the paper that they used back then was really, really high rag content. So those are better preserved than my mom's letters from World War II, where the acid content in the paper is just, I mean, they're going to be, and talk about turning to vinegar, they're going to probably disappear before these older letters will. And the letters now, these letters are now at the Beinecke, so they're protected. Um, and anybody, they're open to the public. Anybody can go down there. I think you have to call ahead, but they're generally open. Yes. What's, a, what's been the biggest difference between, I know you've done two scholarly books about your family, and now you're trying to work on a film format. What's the biggest difference between doing a book and a movie? Actually, the number of people that it requires. I mean, I'm used to sitting over my laptop in my office, you know, um, but this requires just, aside from the interview subjects, it requires, you know, collaboration and stuff, and it's just been, it's, it's been Experience. See, you have a question? Yes. Yes, I wanted to know what you really 
are looking to accomplish. You want to tell the story, but what's the passion that's driving you? I just a project. I really feel strongly about that. It's so important to preserve the legacy of these people. I mean, you know, my great grandparents who were among the first African Americans to buy property up in Hartford's North End. Anna Louise James, the first African American woman to have a pharmacy license. You know, and these are not stories that people know. You know, people people know kind of about my mom, you know, but other than that, it's stories that are not known. And this is going to, this format will reach more people than a book. Because it, it ultimately, the aim is to put it on public television. So it'll be, and, and also show it in schools. So it'll become a part of an academic curriculum. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Both your book and this video, this documentary, will be an aid to the general cause of African American history, yeah. which is something that started up sort of in the, 18, in the 1940s. Yeah. There, there wasn't any attention paid to black communities right. or black individuals or black lives before that time. It's yeah. gotten to be a, a very big subject now. So you've got some information that's not available anywhere that's how, that's how I feel. Yeah, I agree. Thank you, Barbara. Yes? Liz, in all your research, what was the biggest surprise to you? You know, with reading these letters, it completely blew out the myth that we weren't literate. I mean, if you listen to that, no, Willis, the one that wrote, you know, please send the money, he finished high school. But he didn't misspell words. He wrote in complete sentences. Um, I mean, I would have expected that of Helen, who went to college. But these folks were amazing with their use of language, with you know what what we would regard now as you know sort of limited education. But they were just. I mean, I hate to use the word, word articulate, but they were articulate. Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that was the biggest when I started. That was the biggest surprise. Um, that that and, and even Anna, their mother, when she came here, she was about six when she got here. So she learned to read and write as a child. They taught their father to read and write, because um, of course he wasn't allowed to. Um, so, but that was, you know, they got their point across mm -hmm. very effectively. Did, yeah, yes. Can you describe the feeling for you hearing some of those other? Um, Academics talk about your mother's book starting that whole Harlem literary being being a piece of that. Well, it's interesting because when Kevin we did the interview with Kevin, that was by no means the first time I had heard anything like that. I mean, I you know I knew she was somebody pretty phenomenal before I get I you know. I guess when I was growing up, I, at some point, maybe in my early, early teens, I realized, you know, my mother was not like other mothers. Um, you know, well, no, because when you're a little kid, that's your reality, right? Um, and I realized, oh, you know, this is, this, she's somebody pretty special. I think the thing that blew me out of the water, and it's not in this clip, but he says um, at one point in the interview that we did with him, that he thinks that she wrote the very first young uh, adult novel, the y, that she started the YA genre. I have no idea if that's true. I don't have a background in literature. 
Um, but she wrote a book called Tituba of Salem Village, which was a, a novel about the woman who supposedly started the Salem witchcraft trials, which came out in 1964, I think, 63 or 64. So I don't know if somebody can go back farther than that with stuff that's identified specifically as YA, but that surprised me, um, I think. And that I just learned you know, when we did the interview with Kevin last year. What was your mother's uh, educational background? And, and she had a degree, a pharmacy license. She, mm -hmm. they wanted her to run the, take over the pharmacy, ah. and so they sent her, they sent her to Hampton Institute for a couple of years, and she didn't stay. And then she went to what's now part of the University of Connecticut Pharmacy School, but it was then called Connecticut College of Pharmacy. It was in New Haven, um, and she helped run the drugstore for a number of years as she was beginning to write before she married my dad and moved to New York. So. And she worked for the Critic? The, the she worked for magazine. the... Oh, the... She worked for the oh, Amsterdam the, News and the People's Voice, which was out of Peyton Powell's... Oh, that's what she I'm wrote for the crisis. The, no, I'm, I'm not yeah. actually... Yeah, she, she, yeah. yeah she wrote for um, the People's Voice. Okay. Well, thank you. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank our guest, Elizabeth Petrie, and the host for the lecture, the Mark Twain House and Museum. Read more about Liz's search for her family history in the fall 2019 issue of Connecticut Explored, where you'll also find Martha Hall Kelly's story about Caroline Faraday. You can listen to our podcast with Kelly in episode 34, and to hear more about Barbara Beeching's research on the black middle class in Hartford, listen to episode 53 of Grading the Nutmeg. This episode was produced by Mary Donahue, assistant publisher of Connecticut Explored and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan. Subscribe to Connecticut Explored and get the upcoming winter issue with stories about events or inventions that disrupted history. Subscribe, buy back issues and collections, including a make-your-own collection at a special price at ctexplored.org. This is Walt Woodward. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time for another episode of Grading the Nutmeg. Thank you.